0: Hey, I'm Bethany Dawson and welcome to My Classic Soul, the podcast dedicated to the best in soul and R&B music throughout the decades. In our latest episode, soulmusic.com founder, David Nathan, catches up with the special guest, multi-talented, award-winning Marcus Miller a recent 2020 inductee into the Soul Music Hall of Fame in the categories producer slash arranger and musician slash instrumentalist to talk about his illustrious career working with icons like Luther Vandross, Aretha Franklin and Miles Davis, among a more than impressive list of credits that is literally pages long, as well as his own work as a solo recording artist and composer. well
1: sometimes when we do the podcast that I, we do for my classic soul I, I have like this big introduction that I do you know and uh, and, and I could do a big introduction for our, our guest for today um, because we known each other a long time uh, so I'm gonna cut the introduction short so we could talk more so I'm <laughs> just gonna say it is a real uh, honor privilege pleasure to welcome guest uh, award-winning producer, songwriter, musician, and recent lifetime, uh, recent inductee to the Song Music Hall of Fame, Marcus Miller.
2: David, Nathan, how are you doing, man? It's great to see you again, man. You too,
1: you too. As I referenced in, in the introduction there, which is one of the briefest ones I've ever done, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, we go back. We go back, and I was trying to you know, in preparation for our, for our podcast, I was trying to think, well, when did I first meet you? And I couldn't actually identify it specifically. Uh, so how we can probably piece it together is talking about your uh, beginnings of your own uh, career, particularly in regard as a, um, as, a, as a producer and songwriter and also, of course, as a, as a, as a stellar musician, uh work session musician and tour musician and then of course recording artists in your own right but I can't actually pin the actual moment when I met you. Do you have any idea when that might be?
2: My my guess is early 80s. Um yeah. and um I know I first started writing music for Lonnie Liston Smith, right? Okay and that was actually late 70s, 77. 78. And I also wrote some stuff for Bobby Humphrey.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That was like during the first wave of that kind of contemporary jazz thing. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. what they are anymore. I don't know what they call it anymore. But you know, I'm talking about Roy yeah, Ayers, Norman right. Connors, yes, Silver Washington Jr., those kind of folks, you know? Absolutely. And then um, after that, I got into studio work and I was, right. you know, because I, I could play the bass like I'm from around the way, but I could read music really well because I was classically yes. trained on the clarinet. So I started doing sessions uh, for everybody, and I was just walking up and down Broadway, wow. just different dates. And then, uh, you know who else was doing that was Luther Vandross. He yes, was yes, yes. a session singer, so he sang background on everybody's record. If you needed great backgrounds for your record, disco records or, soul records, whatever it was, you call Luther and he would call the correct singers, you know, Mm -hmm. he'd put together a background group for you and he'd suggest parts for your music. So Luther was doing that. I was doing my bass singing. We were crossing paths a lot. Mm. And eventually, you know, uh, we became buddies. Luther recommended me to Roberta Flack. Yes. Yes. you know, When he wasn't doing sessions, he was doing concerts, singing back for Roberta. I remember that, yeah. I ended up joining the band and we became really good friends then. And yes. eventually, you know, he said, You know, I want to do a demo. I said, What, you want to be an artist? He said, Yeah. I said, You're the number one background singer in New York. You're doing so well. You're singing on all the commercials, you know, for yeah. Ford trucks and, and <laughs> military and, you know, and everything. And you're doing so well. Why do you want to go through the hassle of being a, a yeah artist he said you know i got a, I got a vision an idea in my head about what i want to do on my own so we ended up doing a demo buddy williams who was also the drummer in roberta flack's band he played on the demo myself uh nat adderley jr who was luther's childhood friend piano player yes uh, and the nephew of cannonball adderley the great jazz musician he was on the demo. Steve Love, guitarist, was on the demo. And that demo ended up being Luther Joss's first record, Never Too Much. And so I'm thinking, David, to, you know, it's a long answer to your question. I think that when, <laughs> when the Luther stuff came out, it's probably when, you know, we began to talk, you know, because uh, yes. I know you're a great fan of Luther Vangios. And uh, it was probably, and that record came out, I think, 81. So, That's uh, correct. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, I, I do have a little anecdote to throw in there, Marcus, and and, and I'm not sure um, that this this will make you smile. I think, um, in the time period uh, just prior to uh, Luther doing that album, the the first album for Epic, um, uh, he and I were neighbours. We lived in, in buildings next door to each other on West Fifty Sixth Street.
2: I knew that. I knew you that. Yes. I mean, I I forgot, but yes. Yes. I, I, I knew that you guys. Were... I, I was in
1: 320, and I think he was in 330. My was a modest, small building. His was okay. one of those like eight, ten, story, whatever. And yeah. um, and, and we met. Uh, we had done an interview when he had a, a, a group like the, the, uh, a group called called Luther that recorded right. for Capilano mm-hmm. uh, Records, and uh, which was of course uh, the, the, the part of Atlantic. And then he. Um, we ran into each other in the street, and he said, oh, well, what, what are you doing? You know, like, not rude, but like, oh, what are you doing here? I said, well, I live, I live in that building. He said, well, I live in that building. So <laughs> we were like, oh, we're neighbors. And that was really the beginning of, of us having a friendship. And, of course, we had already done the interview. And But the, the thing I was going to go cut straight to is that he, um, I remember when he was uh, on, on the road with Roberta and, and doing all the jingles and so on, and he had made a demo and it was a, and he gave me a cassette. this is the days of cassette okay Marcus mm-hmm. I think you remember those days right? Well yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the, the cassette had like a, I think three songs three or four songs and the one I remember most vividly and and, and I don't know if you were on this was uh, on this demo. Uh, was You Stop Loving
2: Me. Stop Loving. There you go.
1: We've got we've got a, a, a nice little rendition
2: here. Thank you, Marcus. Were you on that? Were you on that? On that yeah, demo? yeah. And that was the hit of the demo, we all thought. You that, know?
1: Yeah, yeah. And here's, here's, here's what happened. I, uh, I said to Luther, Yeah, uh, he was having, actually, to be honest, and he, he would have said the same thing, he was having a hard time getting a record deal as a Absolutely. solo artist. Yeah, And I was going to London, and he said, well, David, I you, you, you know, was going to visit London, and my, my family and everyone, and he said, could you take the cassette with you to see if anyone, like, was interested? And I said, sure, absolutely. So there I went with the little cassette when You stopped Loving Me on it. I think it had, I for some reason, I think it had Bad Boy on it. It has something else on there, though. I don't think it had never too much on it. I can't remember. I can't remember what uh, There were like four songs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. anyway, You Stop Loving me Music the one that I remember too. Yeah. So I went to a couple of record company people in London, and I thought, well, somebody's going to say, yeah, this is great. And, and, and I remember having a meeting with an A&R guy, and he said, well, it's really good. It sounds really great. And I told him it's on his credit. He said, but it's just too American. <laughs> To America. So I had to come back to New York and tell Luther, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't, you yeah,
2: I, I tried, but, um, you well, know. That's one of the, like, the most precious stories of perseverance that I yeah. know, that I've personally experienced, because yeah. uh, we did that demo on a Sunday morning at Media Sound, which was right down the block from where you used to
1: live. 57th Street, yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah. And, um, From the time we did the demo, Luther took that thing around as you did. He took that thing around to every record company for at least a year. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the reaction was always, it sounds good. I think, they, you know, the the A&R guys at the record companies were looking for a gimmick. Because at that time, David, you remember, R&B was about Earth, Wind & Fire, Lakeside, um, um, uh, Cameo. You know, Absolutely, know, about, about groups with 16 dudes in them with every color in the spectrum on their outfits. You know what I mean? And Luther didn't really have a gimmick like that. His gimmick was that he could really sing, you know, that's right. But that had fallen out of favor for a second yeah. at that particular point in, yes. uh, in R&B history. So he thanks to Larkin Arnold. You remember that name?
1: That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah.
2: That was that. Epic Records, which is part of uh, Sony, and Larkin said, okay, I'll sign you. And although, David, the A&R guys and the record companies weren't sure, when that record hit the radio... Oh, I remember. The public was damn sure that this was like...
1: I remember so well. I do, I do. Well, I have one more moment associated with that, and then we want to move on to talking about all the different many things that you did subsequent to that. Uh, and that was, I remember the day he came over uh, when he had finished uh, recording A House Is Not a Home. Mm. And um, he called me and said, you know, can, can, you, can you come over? You know, I want to play you something. And I went over to his apartment because again it was the next building and um and he put it on. And of course I knew the song from Dion and uh, Dion Warwick, and uh, I knew a lot about the song actually. I knew it's history and so on. And when he put it on, <laughs> you know that expression but we didn't have that expression back then, Mark. It was like shake we didn't have S A M A S M H I shake oh, yeah, my head.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. But
1: I just shook my head. I didn't I didn't have, I, he said, do you, you don't like it? Because I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't I couldn't find any words. I, it's funny now, I, I, in remembering the, the moment, I can't find the word. Yeah. I just looked, I, I was like, Yeah I was like that. Yeah. So, so I knew that something crazy. had happened, you know, something mm-hmm. massively major and wonderful had happened. And uh, so that was the beginning of, of, of that journey. Sure. And um, did you immediately go on the road with him?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, um, once he got signed, um, yeah. the record came out, and never too much was on the radio all day long, every day, uh, during the daytime, and then at night, house is not a home, yeah, radio yeah. all night, so it, it was just a, an instant success. So, I remember, um, one of the first gigs we had was at a A theater called the Savoy in Manhattan It's Mm -hmm. not there, but it was like In the Times Square area And uh, We opened up for Shaka Khan And uh, man I think the record had maybe been out For a month And people were singing every word It was just incredible I missed the first set It was two sets, two shows Uh, We had a sound check And I lived in Queens at the time Near JFK Airport And after sound check, which was in the afternoon, I figured I'm going to go home and and get my cool looking bass and get into my clothes. And on the F train, uh, apparently a building collapsed on the route of the F train and the train just stopped in the tunnel for hours. And I'm sitting there going, man, this is crazy. So when the train finally pulled into the next station, hours later, I just jumped on the train going the other direction to get back to the gig. And when I got to the gig, they were playing the last song, David, of the first set. Oh, man. Luckily, Anthony Jackson, you familiar with him? The, yes, the of course. Yeah, yeah, Luckily, Anthony Jackson happened to be in the audience. So, when they were about to hit, Nat Adderley, he looks and sees Anthony and says, Anthony, get your ass up here. <laughs> <laughs> and Anthony, who, who is an incredible reader, just yes. read the set. You know, he just read the, read the, wow. read the first wow. set. And I showed up in the last song, and waiting for Luther as he's coming off the stage with my head down, you know, because I'm like his little brother, you know what I mean? So I know, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. hell, but he just said, "You shouldn't have left. You shouldn't have went home." You know? I said, "Yeah, I know, I know." And man, let me tell you, I played my ass off that second. That second.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering actually. J- j- this is a point of where you mentioned this as and I'm wondering if. Uh, that was also the you mentioned uh, rufus and shaka khan i wonder if that is the is the actually the time when they did the uh live at, at, live at the it had a live album called live at the savoy uh which included um uh ain't no well ain't nobody was not on the
2: live part of it right. but there was it was a, a live album do you think yeah, that was it i don't know because david this gig no i'm sure it wasn't because this was a shaka khan gig you know this. Oh, was,
1: oh I mean, like, solo uh, shotgun.
2: Oh, I got you. Okay, I got yeah, right there. There. Yeah. Cloud yeah, okay. and naughty okay. and that kind of stuff. So
1: yeah,
2: I got you. I got you. That was so, theory,
1: you know. So let, let me ask you. I was looking through your 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 very lengthy discography. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally pages and pages i'm like wow and, and i was thinking well how can i condense this into like you know asking you about main things so, so i narrowed it down to a few specific questions specific points so one of the things um it, it, if one of the primary questions i have for you uh marcus is when did what, what was your first gig as or first opportunity as a producer
2: my first uh Opportunity as a producer was Lonnie Liston Smith. I had, um, I had, you know, as a teenager, I had written some music for him, uh, Space Princess. A couple of things were pretty, pretty successful for Lonnie. And then, you know, I I moved on and I was working with Luther and working with different people. And then Lonnie called me and said, "Listen, I would like for you to produce my next album." And I was like, "Oh, that'd be fantastic!" Because Mm You know, I'd been arranging, I'd been writing, but I hadn't actually ever been at the at the helm. Yes. And, uh, Lonnie gave me that opportunity, and we did. Uh, we had a song called "Never Too Late," and we had a song called "A Lonely Way to Be." Yes. That, that did very well. But that was my first one, and then um, I think uh, the next one was a, a live recording by David Sanborn. Um, I had been playing in David's band in the eighties from like 79 through 84 and in 84 um, they decided they wanted to do a live album and i had been touring and David had been basically playing David, he'd been playing the same set for four years on the road. Wow. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. he didn't add any songs. So by the time it was time to do the live album, we knew the songs like the back of our hand yeah. and the manager said, rather than hire an outside producer, Marcus, why don't you just, um, why don't you just produce it? So that was my second one. And, and then David and I began to start producing. I started producing records for David on a regular basis. And Luther, uh, he said, listen, we're writing all these songs together. I need you to help me take some of the load off. So mm. Luther and I began to co-produce his albums. Yes.
1: So, so let's go backwards a little bit. Uh, so in sequence, so then really uh, songwriting precedes producing. Yeah, so it, now I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you a tricky question, Marcus. And I'm sure you know the answer. What was the first song you recorded?
2: Or the first song you wrote that was recorded? It's called "Sunset Burgundy" by Bobby Humphrey. Oh, you remember? Wow. You remember the first one always? You know, and uh, yes. Bobby Humphrey was produced at that time by Ralph MacDonald, who's very yeah. a prolific yeah. songwriter himself and a, and a percussionist. Percussionist, anyway. of course. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was in Bobby Humphrey's band, and I played my little cassette for Bobby. And she said, I like this song. I'm going to ask Ralph if we can include it in our album. And she um, she must have fought for me because Ralph said, okay, we'll let the kid play. When I was 17, I came in the studio. They were playing. You know, they were recording the whole album. It was Steve Gad, Eric Gale, Richard T., Anthony Jackson, and Ralph. So this is like the A-team of New York. Yeah. They'd all played with King Curtis and Aretha Franklin and, and Harry Belafonte. They were just the top. And Ralph says, Anthony get up, this kid's going to play this one song. I'm like, oh, man, Anthony Jackson. Get up and sit in the room on the couch while I play this one song. (laughs) But to make a long story short, uh, I wrote another song for for Bobby that we recorded in the same way and Ralph asked me at that time, hey, man, can you read music? And I said, yeah, I can read music. He said, don't bullshit me. Can you you read? Because I'm about to start suggesting you for some of these jingles and for some of these sessions. I said, man, I play classical clarinet. I can I can read any bass part that you that you write, you know. I said if a, if a if a fly had a poop on toilet paper, I'll read that. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so he
2: said, All right. And he he true to his word, man, he he um he recommended me for a couple of sessions and within a month I was working all day, all night. In the New yes. York studios, so but it was all so that from was that. it was all, from, all that. from that
1: one song, yes. But and as your as your songwriting career as your career developed uh, overall, um, would you say that songwriting became more prominent? Wh- when would you say songwriting became even more prominent um, as part of uh, as part of your? Um, I was going to say your repertoire, but not really repertoire. About uh, 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 as part of your um, array of talents. There you go. <laughs>
2: well i'll tell you um i grew up in an area called jamaica queens yes New yes York. and like i said earlier it's near jfk airport and i just was part of a musician community that was just incredible i'm talking about guys like donald blackman bernard wright um tom brown uh denzel miller uh ronnie miller is just a bunch of great musicians and we were a little community you know we called ourselves the cats and um Denzel Miller, who's a great keyboard player, he played with Shaka Khan, George Duke, Stanley Clark. Uh, Denzel, who was like a mentor, he said, "Listen, you're not a complete musician unless you're writing music as well." Mm. Now, that's mm. not—that's not necessarily true, but right. I'm 16 years old, and this is what Denzel's telling me. So I took him at his word. So I started writing. I started writing really early, you know, and. Um, mm. Like I said, the first song that uh, I got recorded was Bobby Humphrey. But but I had a bunch of them. I had cassettes. Matter of fact, you know, I was writing some songs. I, I gave David Sanborn a cassette of my songs when I was playing with him early on. And he, he, he called me back, hey, man, I want to do these songs. And I said, which one? He said, all of them. You
0: know?
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? So songwriting was always really an integral part for me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think mm-hmm. uh, you know how it works, David. Um, if you're a songwriter and a musician, your songwriting or an arranger, also they all feed off of each other. So as a bass player, absolutely, play, as a bass player, I was always trying to play something that was really appropriate for the arrangement. I never tried to overplay, you know, unless it was mm-hmm. necessary for the arrangement. But you know what I mean? As an yeah. arranger, you're always listening to the whole sound. So I was always trying to play appropriate mm-hmm.
1: stuff. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Of course, at some point, I know you began recording as a solo artist. And am I correct that um, your first solo ventures uh, as a recording artist were with Warner Brothers?
2: Yeah, with Warner Brothers, um, I want to say like 82, 83. I did two albums for Warner Brothers. One was called Suddenly and one was called Marcus Miller. And um, at that time, I was heavy into studio work by this time. I had been playing in the studios for three or four years. And, you know, I think when I listen to that record, I can hear that. You know what I mean? Because mm. there's two different talents, being a studio musician where you can fit into every different situation. Because I was playing for Elton John, and then I was playing for Carly Simon, and then I was playing for Grover Washington Jr. You know what I mean? Then I was playing for McDonald's <laughs> in a jingle. You know what I mean? John Fagan. It was crazy. So... I could switch really easily. Yes. But as artists, artist, that's not what you need to do. As an artist, you have to have a really specific focus point of view. So I don't really think I had that. I was hanging with Luther, you know, So I was singing songs and, and the bass was just supporting. After a couple of albums, I said, you know what? Let me step back and see if I can get a little bit clearer idea of who I am. And then I, I picked up later on yeah
1: and, and and being signed to Warner Brothers was that like a, a natural place for you to go or was it as a result of David Sanborn's your association with David Sanborn I'm guessing was
2: probably the way that happened yeah David Sanborn and and when we were playing with David Sanborn on gigs we were opening for Al Jarreau who was oh also yeah yeah, yeah and you know Al was this was when Al was a huge pop star yeah you know I mean so I was uh I was getting to know all the guys at Warner Brothers just from being associated with David and sure. Alex, You know, Tommy no. Puma was the mm-hmm. guy that signed me over there. Yes, yes,
1: and and um, I know it's, this is a different. I, I was looking again as I, I was looking at your your list of credits. I was like, I don't even know where this would be like a five hour podcast. <laughs> but since we don't have five hours, um, I'm going to ask you about a couple of particular artists that you work with. That uh, And just your thoughts about how, what, how that was and Obviously the first one that comes to mind for me While I'm not exactly in the soul category, so to speak Is a, is a, is a legend, of course, uh, Miles Davis So yeah. h- how was it for you working with Miles Davis? Were you like completely intimidated or you were just like Okay, all, right, all right,
2: another gig yeah. yeah, well, you know, it helps to be young, I'll tell you that you yes. know I mean? Because you're not really aware of how heavy it is when you're 21 But uh, it wasn't like I wasn't, I was completely unaware. I, I knew this was Miles Davis and he was already a legend. 1981, you know, he had been on the scene since the forties, you know what I mean? So he had 40 years of an incredible history. My father and my uncles had all of his records. So I knew it was a big deal, but, uh, It wasn't so bad. It was intimidating when I walked in the studio the first time and saw Miles Davis, you know, because what do you say? (laughs) You know what I mean? How do you have conversation with Miles Davis? That was a a little tricky at first. But once we started playing music, you know, he gave us a hard time, like for the first couple of takes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He he would criticize us and tell us to do one thing. And then when we did that, he said, that's not what I want. I want the other thing. But once we got into a groove, I forgot about being nervous because, you know, music will do that you know music will make you especially if you want to be true to to the music you have to kind of leave your 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 insecurities you know leave them at the door and do your thing so once the music started i was cool
0: let's pause there for a quick break then we'll return with david nathan and special guest marcus miller recounting just a few of his many career highlights that include two decades of collaborating with luther Vandross his first session with Aretha and producing Mars Davis.
2: now on Soul Music Records in association with Platinum Garage Recordings, Preston Glass presents Love and Compassion, Volume 3, the third volume of the successful Preston Glass Presents Love and Compassion digital album series, continuing the positive messages of the previous two volumes. It includes guest artists Larry Graham, Chubby Tavares, Debbie Sledge, Robin S., and The Temptations' Ron Tyson. Preston Glass Presents Love and Compassion, Volume 3, is out now, on all digital platforms.
1: All Maybe then they listen to what you have to say. All right. So I'm going to ask you about a couple of other legends. So, um, Aretha. <laughs> and sessions with Aretha. <laughs>
2: Okay. I didn't have to say the last name, obviously. No, no, no. If you need her last name, then you just need to just sit down somewhere (laughs) and 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 do some studying. But Arif Martin, you remember Arif Martin, the great producer? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I had been making a name for myself in the New York studios and Arif called me and said, listen, I'm going to L.A. to record Aretha Franklin. And um, there's nobody quite right for the record in LA, so I want to fly you out to LA. And I said, okay. So I I, I went out, and uh, it was Jeff Picaro and Steve, uh, David Page, and Steve Lukather. You know, so it was the Toto guys. Toto, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Greg Fillengames was on the set too, and myself. And so we, and Aretha was there. This was in the days when, you know, mm-hmm. the singer actually sang along with the band. Yeah. The recording. And it was just, I mean, that felt like you were in the presence of royalty also, you know. Mm. And can I tell you one quick story about Aretha? Of course you can. Yeah. About that session? Yeah. We were there for about a week cutting tracks for Aretha. And um, we were at the end of a day and everybody's packing up their instruments. And um, the drummer, Jeff, was gone and and everybody else was gone except me. I'm still putting my bass away in, in my little... Wires and stuff. And Aretha Martin must have asked Aretha to go and overdub an extra line. So while I'm packing my bass, Aretha comes into the session, into the studio, to the microphone, which is right there in front of me. And she starts, puts on the headphones and she starts singing, you know, these lines for Aretha. And I'm sitting there and I'm hearing the Queen of Soul, and she's literally four feet away from me. And you know how when you're recording in the studio with headphones, other people can't hear the music. So all I was hearing was her voice. And it was flipping me out, man. I couldn't believe that I was in in her presence. And I'm hearing her voice this clearly. So I'm just slowly, slowly packing my bass. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm really slowed down. It was one of the most incredible moments of my life. Yes. Okay. Three days later, we're at the end of the day. And Arif says, Marcus, I want you to add a secondary bass line to this uh to this song. I said, okay. So everybody else was gone. I, I ran and got my bass and sat down in my chair and got ready to uh, add this bass line that Arif had requested, right? And right before they turn on the tape to play the music, Aretha comes out of the side door, pulls up a chair, and puts it three feet in front of me and goes like this. <laughs> And man, I was so nervous playing with her. She never said a word. Mm -hmm. Eventually she left, but she taught me such a huge lesson. You know, what she was saying to me is, I'm sure you consider me the queen or whatever, but you still need to realize I'm a human being and you need to realize what it feels like to have somebody sitting in your grill like this while you're trying to perform. Right. Yes. yes. And Again, she never said a word, but she taught me, such a great lesson. I have to remember that these superstars are still human beings. Human beings, absolutely.
1: So, I mean, again, we could go through everything you've ever done. It would be five hours, and we're not going to do that. But I do have to and and I'm and really kind of I'm kind of thinking, well, what do, I mean, I had a list of questions, and we've gone over some of them. So, but, but I do need to ask you, if you look back at, at all you've done up to this point, is there one particular... I mean, I was highlights the right word, but I mean, you've mentioned a couple of amazing experiences, but is there one thing that you can say that's, that was the moment when I, you just felt like, wow, like you had really reached a certain point of, 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 of I don't know what you call it. I'm a success, but more, more like this was, the, this, is a, this is a highlight that you'll never, ever
2: forget. You know, it's kind of hard David because I was playing with um Miles and Luther and we were recording with Aretha all at the same time. Wow. You know, it, I mean I was literally running from studio I ran I ran out of a session for Luther and jumped on a plane from New York to Boston and got to the the hall just as Miles and those guys were walking on stage. You know, it was nuts. Um, and, and David Sanborn also, there was so much going on for me in the eighties. It was kind of a whirlwind, you know what I mean? Like I said, I was 21, 22, 23. So it just seemed like the most natural thing to do until I look back on it later on. I do remember, um, a couple of things. I remember when, um, I gave Luther a tape of a track because he wanted to write something for Aretha Franklin. And I gave him a, a a track, you know, like just the music. And um, he said, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm going to write a melody and, and some lyrics to this for Aretha. <laughs> and he, the next day he's calling me up. He said, man, I just wrote the first verse of this song for Aretha. It's going to be incredible, Marcus. Order that Porsche you always wanted. Right. I'm like, wait, what? He said, You're gonna make so much money. This song is gonna be a smash. You know, Luther was like that. He was very Yeah, I know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So uh uh half hour later he'd say, I just finished the the chorus, make it a blue Porsche, you know. So he kept calling me after he (laughs) write parts of the song, he would call me and add features to this Porsche that he suggested. I get and it was incredible. And he was it was so much fun because when we worked together, it was just so he was so funny, you know, and the song ended up being a big hit. It was called Jump to It.
1: Ended <laughs> up being it's called cool, Jump to It. Like I just kind of like, yeah, yeah
2: jump. man. Yeah, it, it was Jump to It and it was a hit. I ended oh, up, yeah. of course, you know what I mean? I didn't buy a blue one, but I, you know, yeah. I, I felt obligated because <laughs> 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 <they had> no <laughs> this was going to happen. But, uh, you know, that's a musical thing because it's incredible to hear. Aretha singing something uh, that you had a hand in uh, to add to that incredible history. Same thing with Miles. You know, these guys have an incredible history, and if you could just add a couple of sentences to that history, that's a pretty awesome thing. You know what I mean? So I I remember that. I remember working with Luther because he was just an incredible artist, and we had so much fun. I don't know how we got the records done. You know what I mean? But um, I hear him back, and uh, he was truly a great artist miles i i ended up writing music and producing for miles so that was pretty awesome and ended up you know although i was intimidated by him when i joined his band after a couple of years i started writing and producing and we became really tight man and i heard stories man about bebop about the 40s about the 50s i mean and the thing was he would start talking Right before we're going to record, because we were just adding a trumpet to tracks that I already done. So it's just he and I, you know, he's sitting here at the mic and I'm just sitting here telling him when to come in, when to stop, that kind of stuff. And right before a take, he go, man, Charlie Parker. And then he just tell me this long story about Charlie Parker. And we would let him go as long as he wanted to talk because it was just gold, man. And I just feel really fortunate to have to have had those times with him.
1: Well, you have certainly worked with some absolute legends and, you know, really the thing that is great for me, uh, Marcus, is that at the same time, you know, you are recognized for your own talent, for what you've created for yourself and and who you are in in the music industry and in the the realm of music, you know, not just one particular genre of music, which is why, you know, having you um, uh, inducted into the uh, Soul Music Hall of Fame, as again, I always tell people, remind people, this is by popular vote. This isn't like the music industry sitting. I think one with that. This isn't like the music industry sitting somewhere deciding so and so is great. But this is actually what we do online. You know, through SoulMusic.com, we actually have people put a vote, and so it's really a it's a testament to your. Uh, to not just to your abilities uh, in the studio, on the on the road. And everywhere. Well, there you go, there you go, in full display. The Soul Music Hall of Fame uh, induct, induction, um, and, and the only uh, the only category you're not, you are not yet. Been, thank you for showing that. Yes, please please make sure that you uh, post on social media. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, uh, it, you know, the only category that I didn't see that that we've yet. Uh, Uh, you've yet been inducted as a songwriter. And the fact is, you just mentioned some of those songs, and I think we need to uh, make sure people know that, yes, yes, incredible uh, (laughs) solo artist, um, producer, musician, extraordinary – written a couple of songs here and there (laughs) and i just have to end by sharing one thing with you with somebody we talk about jump to it and i do have like a a minute luther story and i don't usually talk in a minute i'll see if i can do this so when i got to know luther you know at at that time period you were talking about one of the traditions that we started that he started because i didn't drive was he would he would call me and say i want you to hear my new you know, new record before it comes out, and we literally uh, we drive around Manhattan because at that time we both lived in Manhattan, and I remember vividly when he played Jump to it to me for the first time, <laughs> and I. <clears throat> i knew I, mean, I don't know if it was a car, jeep. I don't know what it was. We were dri- He was driving, but uh, I. I said we. We also gone round like this whole part of Manhattan about ten times. I said play again, play again, play because I knew that he was about to uh, give Aretha, you know, her biggest hit for a while, and it just um, yeah. was so yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, and 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 really, you know, to know that 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 the genesis of that song began with you with a cassette. It's pretty phenomenal,
2: man. Pretty phenomenal. Well, you know she, she hadn't she hadn't had a hit for a while, you know? It was I know. Years. Yeah. yeah, had, yeah. Was maybe since the 70s. So it was a big deal. Yes, to um to kind of bring her back and then she went on for a whole second part of her career. That's right. That's right. and all that stuff, but we were very very proud. It was I mean, she was Luther's idol, you know what I mean? Yeah. So to be part of it and to help him Contribute to his idol and to be involved. Absolutely. It's Just incredible
1: Well to complete, to complete Our wonderful podcast Marcus I, you know I think we might have to Do a part two at some point uh, <laughs> what, what, what is this Is it something that you have not yet Accomplished that you want to accomplish
2: um, You know Now for me uh, I'm looking Like outside you know What can I do with my music that can affect the world, You know, for instance, uh, I did a, a, a Get Out the Vote uh, virtual concert where I arranged it. And I, uh, I had Patti LaBelle and Chaka Khan, B.B. Winans Take Six, Layla Hathaway, a whole bunch of great artists. And I called them and said, look, you know, we got to make sure everybody uh, participates in this uh, American presidential vote that's coming up. Um, let's do a virtual concert to inspire people. To go out and vote, and uh, we were very, very successful. You know what I mean. So I got to use music to um, to to kind of help um, make things better, at least. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean. You I, certainly did. Yeah. I realized that music was that powerful. I wrote a song called "Tutu" for Miles Davis. Yeah. It was uh, in celebration of Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was fighting alongside Nelson Mandela against apartheid. And when I finally visited South Africa after the end of Apartheid, people let me know how much that song had inspired them and gave them support, strength. And when I realized that, you know, that was the beginning of me realizing music can be really powerful and it can be used for some incredible things. So since then, I've been looking towards that to see what I can help achieve. Wow.
1: Well, Marcus, it's really, really great to speak with you. It's a, it's a again a start where I'll end where I began, which is, is a privilege, honor. Man, know. it's almost forty years, David Nathan. I know, man. Make, see, I wasn't seventeen when you met me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so hey, but you, but you've written some great stuff, man, and particularly for my man Luther Vandross. You know what I mean? You really kind of got into the inside of the music and really um we always appreciated what you were writing about him so thank you
1: well you're welcome thank you and thank you for being part of my classic soul today and uh you want to you want to hold up the, the indu- induction yeah. one more time for the okay, right induction. yay yeah all right marcus with all right. Everyone can see. We should take a, a, sh- a, a, a snapshot. Oh, well. Anyway. All right. Thank you so much. And, and, and yeah, I look forward to uh, at some point doing uh, another podcast with you.
2: Sounds good, man. Looking forward to it. All right. It. Take care of yourself. Thank you. All right. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks, David and Marcus. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and visit us for breaking news and daily updates about your favorite soul and R&B artists over at soulmusic.com. I'm Bethany Dawson, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on My Classic Soul.